Hi, we're back. It's Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam, with our Sunday edition, Just Ask the Press, with our usual combatants, John Bennett, from C- editor-at-large from CQ Roll Call, and Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, and uh, all the good stuff is on the cutting room floor. We we started before we started. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for joining us this, this week. We're going to start with uh, the latest from Trumplandia, who, who has uh, always wants to take some oxygen in the room. So we're going to start with Trump and his latest uh, diatribe and his problems in Arizona. He's facing more, possibly more charges on uh, from the Mar-a-Lago debacle. Uh, Joe Biden this week walked off the set of an interview um, while mentioning the Iraq war. No, that was something else. Uh, At the same time, Bidenomics takes a test spin this week as uh, Mm -hmm. Joe Biden seeks to counter-program 40 years of Reaganomics. We also had several SCOTUS decisions this week from the Supreme Court on student loan debt, LBGTQ, uh, problems, affirmative action, and elections, and we have your letters. So stick around. All this week, we'll unpack that and much more when we come back on Just Ask the Question. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not released anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Caraman. With me, as always, Michael Zeldin, former federal prosecutor, and John Bennett, editor, CQ, editor-at-large at CQ Roll Call. I always forget that, at-large, John. And he's not that large of a guy, but he's at-large. So but that's the fun part. The, the at-large <laughs> part is the fun part. Yeah, that's right. So you can't leave that out. I forgot the fun part. He's at-large. Because, you know, this business is just, it's just all fun. It's just yeah, all fun. <laughs> Speaking of fun... Let's start out with the the accusation that uh, that well, former uh, president almost can't say his name. Donald Trump uh, made a phone call, tried to pressure uh, the former uh, governor of Arizona to help him overturn the 2020 election. Um, Mike Pence was uh, apparently roped into it, tried to pressure him. There are no recordings of this, as we all know. And uh, this is part of an ongoing investigation into the affairs and life and times of Donald Trump. Michael, you, uh, I'd like you to unpack a little bit of this for us. And then, of course, I have some questions and we'll go from there. Sure. So what the story is, which was broken by the Washington Post, is that in late 2020, Donald Trump 
tried to pressure Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, a Republican, to overturn the presidential election results in that state, citing a narrow loss that Trump believed could be offset uh, when they found the fraud that Trump believed was there. And it's very reminiscent of the phone call he made to Georgia, where he asked Rassenberger to do the same thing. And in this case, however, that call was not recorded. And so the question is what to make of that call. And I've said previously that I don't think those calls either the Rastenberger in Georgia or to Ducey in Arizona, standing alone, are criminal. They're bad behavior. Um, they're sore sport uh, sort of behavior, but they're not criminal. They have they become criminal, potentially criminal, in conjunction with other things. And so you say, well, what might those other things be? And in Arizona, what we know is that the new attorney general in Arizona is said to be looking into the Arizona fake electors scheme. So just like in Georgia and some other states, there were at least two fake electors schemes in Arizona, one tied to the Arizona Republican Party and another to a stand-up group called something like the Sovereign Citizens of the Great State of Arizona. Right. and. And these and these Very like friends and neighbors. <laughs> yeah, well, well the, these these groups uh, did what others did, which is they put forth a fake slate, a, a fake slate. I can't say that fake slate of electors. In fact, in one of them, I think they even used the seal of the state of Arizona to try to give yeah. it the imprimatur of uh, legitimacy. And they were going to push forward those fake electors to Pence uh, to create confusion <clears throat> on certification day, which would allow them to throw this stuff back to the state legislatures. It is also reported that Trump pressured Pence, who knows Ducey, to call Ducey repeatedly to tell him to do what Trump asks. So what you have here in your criminal law analysis is a phone call to Ducey by Trump, phone calls that Trump put Pence up to making to Ducey, fake electors, at least two groups of them, which seem to have been coordinating with the Trump White House, whether it was Trump directly or somebody else we don't know. And all of those things uh, could rise to the level of a couple of things. One is the a state crime of interfering with the performance of election duties or conspiracy to commit election fraud, and federally, conspiracy to defraud the United States by failing to allow for the orderly transition of power. What, lastly, I want to say, Brian, is that we know that Jack Smith now is speaking to people in the inner orb of Trump, Brown, I think, is one of them, who are said to have been some of the organizers of the fake electors scheme across multiple jurisdictions. So there's conversations ongoing between Trump and people like that who could, if they testify, offer uh, 
a picture into the whole orchestration of this fake electors scheme across the country, which would be important evidence in the conspiracy to fraud on the federal level, uh, separate from each state bringing its own actions based on state law violations. That so would be part the, of the, the, of the land. That would that be part of the January sixth investigation? This was not. This would not be Mar-a-Lago, right? This. Under, this is under, not like, Mar-a-Lago, right? And it, it's <clears throat> and it's not January sixth in the insurrection right. stuff. It's you know January sixth grand been, jury. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. I think it's that same. It's it's a D.C. grand jury. Whether uh, there are multiple D.C. grand juries, I, I don't know, but I think there's one, and I think they're hearing. Evidence when you say January 6th, you, you think of the insurrection, but January right. 6th has uh multiple tentacles, and this one would be the conspiracy to defraud whether the quote unquote big lie is criminally actionable. So, before John, before I ask you to jump in here, real quick, Michael, it with all this information, do you foresee uh indictments forthcoming soon before fall, or is this going to be a long term? Uh, I mean, it's already been long term, but is do you? suspect it will be longer well they're gathering evidence still they have uh, a lot to gather <laughs> they have a well but i mean that's that that's not <laughs> a small point there is a lot to gather and as you can tell by the uh, lawsuit by letitia james in new york the criminal suit by alvin bragg in new york the mar-a-lago cases these cases get fly specked and you want to make sure that everything is as perfect as it can be. And so, yeah, there's a hunger to have this out and done and, you know, over with. But well, if you're a prosecutor, election. if you're a prosecutor, you can't be guided principally by the political timeline. You have to be guided by what the facts and the evidence that you create allow for so that if you decide to bring charges, you can win and have that be sustained on appeal so whether they're in their you know in the seventh inning eighth inning ninth inning i don't know but they they seem to be pretty far along yes but but i famously on cnn in one of my earliest tv appearances when asked do i think oj simpson will be convicted said i expect he'll be convicted of second degree murder so there you have it my powers of prediction from day one of my tv career proved uh shoddy <laughs> well <laughs> your performance issues aside let's let john i'm gonna jump in here i mean as we all know no matter what happens and and the longer it takes the more they'll the more oxygen for for uh donald to spin but we're talking about a state with with Kerry Lake as election denier, we're talking about Mike Pence, and we're talking about anything that happens. As we saw, he was in South Carolina, thousands of people. He seems to be impervious. Donald Trump seems to be impervious to any of the uh, uh, of what's going on to him. Yes, I mean it just continues down the Trump lane. It does play into what he wants to run on. Uh, now, whether we think it's wise that he's going to run on these dubious, uh, you know, rigged election, flawed election uh, allegations that on a daily basis he puts forward, be it Truth Social or one of his campaign events. But for now, it's working for him, at least now, at least it's important to say that's just within the uh, Republican primary. It, 
there's no real evidence that it's helping him in head-to-head polls with Joe Biden, for instance. In fact, some of the polling I looked at this week uh, indicates the opposite, that Biden, um, in some polls where Trump was leading by two or three points, you know, now Biden's either neck and neck or up by a point or two. So, um, you know, this only helps Trump in the primary because, you know, he walks in with that 30% support. And with Trump, 30% probably means 35% of Republicans because some people don't want to tell pollsters that that they support Trump. <laughs> yeah, right. Which, which should be telling, I guess, uh, maybe in and of itself. But, it, it's uh, you know, we've talked about this here and and, and we've all talked about it elsewhere. Um, the he st- Trump still has this hold over Republicans. I mean, you... You hear it like when when Brian, you or I are on we're, we're on Capitol Hill and and you talk to even folks like Mitt Romney or Kevin Kramer, a Republican senator from North Dakota. I talked to right before recess about all this. Um, he is not supporting Trump in the primary, but he told me flatly he'll only get stronger in the primary. This only makes him stronger and his rallies will get bigger and his donations will go up. And and unless he's you know, forced from the race because he's convicted or or something like that, he'll be the nominee. And that's, again, that's Kevin Kramer, somebody who's not supporting Trump in the primary. So yeah. Romney has told me basically the same thing. I've asked him a few a few times. So there's a resignation even among the 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 never Trump crowd in the Republican Party that that he's probably going to be the nominee. And we've we've talked about here, Brian, you and I have both written and Michael's talked about it I here too. Um you know, we're headed into pretty unprecedented times with all of Trump's legal problems. And and he's going to be the nominee unless something drastically changes between now and, and next summer. I still don't see him as the. I just still don't. I don't been see consistent. It. If nothing else, you've been consistent. <laughs> I still don't. I just don't see at the end of all this uh, at the end of this road that they take that path because i don't think that path will be available to them if all else if the election were today i agree but i still think that we're a year away from uh you know the the presidential election for you know uh that campaign for real democrats versus republicans we're a year away from that so it anything can happen and it usually does but my my concern is as and michael you and you point to it i mean <clears throat> there is no once again this falls into into kind of the uh this strange ground where Donald Trump triumphs, where there is not, you know, he he has been the mob boss his whole life, you know, like uh, in Goodfellas, you know, Big Paulie, you know, he, he never said anything to six people. He never used a phone. He never, you know, he, and those six people carried out his wishes and no one really knew what he said. He didn't want anybody hearing what he said and he didn't say anything and he didn't want anyone to hear. Now, Donald Trump falls over his own feet quite a bit especially in public. And, and John, we've talked about those uh, events many times where, where Donald Trump has come out and literally stepped on his own, you know what, and with things that he said, and he's, you know, that that may or may not be used against him in court. But in this case, again, in Arizona, there's, there's nothing recorded. There's maybe contemporaneous notes, maybe not. And all of that's got to be played out and weighed in by a prosecutor and, all of this benefits Donald Trump. The longer it takes to get somewhere, the the more Donald Trump will push ahead with his, uh, you know, uh, weaponization of the DOJ. So I'll leave it with this just real quick from both of you. Do you think that this particular thing in Arizona, John, I'll start with you. Do you think it leads to additional charges for the Donald? 
Well, I'm not sure. And and for the, the very reason that uh, Michael walked through on a recent uh, CNN hit and here, um, and I'm not I'm not a lawyer, so I depend on, on folks like Michael. But, you know, I don't I don't know if you can make a case that he committed a crime or crimes there. Um, I think the the prosecutor most likely to uh, to try that case will be in, in the court of public opinion. And that'll be Joe Biden in the general election, um, even though I know you don't think Trump will be the nominee. But yeah. <laughs> I think that's I think that's probably where the the Arizona um, matter is is going to be played out. And and I think Biden, I think Biden is really good on that issue. Perhaps that's why he doesn't talk about it a lot. He's also got a lot of other things going on, as we found out Thursday yeah. and Friday with the Supreme Court decisions. Um, but so I think he's saving. I think Biden knows that that <laughs> I think Joe knows that Joe's good on those issues and makes a compelling case against Trump. So I think that's where we'll hear a lot about the Arizona case. Um, it uh, Michael could maybe correct me here, but maybe that could be brought in to something like the Georgia case as a pattern of behavior. Um, now, the thing about Georgia, that's on tape. Uh, Mike Pence was on um, Face the Nation uh, Sunday morning, and he said he did call Governor Ducey in Arizona, but he didn't pressure him to do anything. To do anything, right. Now, yeah. now, whether or not you believe that, uh, I'll leave that up to, to our listeners here. Uh, Pence says the then president trump asked him to call these governors in these in the in the battleground states to get informational updates and he doesn't remember any pressure from trump to pressure <laughs> these governors again i'll leave that up to our listeners to decide if you believe the former vice president um but as of right now uh it 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 doesn't seem like arizona is as black and white as georgia and again georgia the guy's on tape. Trump's on tape saying the <laughs> yeah. words. Um, but, you know, I, I think Michael and others have have expressed some um, some uh, skepticism about the Georgia case, whether you could get a conviction there. So um, that seems open and shut to me. But again, not a lawyer. Michael, you're up. So in answer to John's question, <clears throat> if there was a federal indictment, on um, 18 U.S. Code 371, this conspiracy to defraud the United States, those those um, state actions, Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, all the others, if they can be tied in as this was the pattern of behavior across multiple states where, one, there was a group of people who organized an effort to get fake electors, two, fake electors was were, were gotten, Three, um, efforts were made to falsely put forth those false electors uh, to Vice President Pence at the time of the, the certification in an effort to defeat the orderly government of process uh, for the selection of Biden. Then that's a federal case that can be conspiracy to defraud. And that case would be this is a multi-state effort to do the following things just that I just outlined and that violates the law. So yeah, that would be it. But as you can imagine, <clears throat> to bring that case, you have to have everything locked down in all of these states. And then you have to create the, the narrative that this was orchestrated from the top and how it was uh, filtered down through the bottom. And you need people along the whole chain of events to testify 
And if Pence, for an example, is saying, I don't remember when I was pressured, if I was pressured, that would be, you know, good for the defense. Yeah. Uh, But uh, it's not dispositive of the case. The fact that he doesn't, quote unquote, remember, he could be viewed as a non-credible witness if you have others who are saying, of course, he was pressured. Uh, That's what Trump does. Trump pressures people. That's his MO. (laughs) And others would testify that absolutely I was pressured. And Rathsenberger has said he felt pressured. pressured. Ducey, the governor from Arizona, we don't know whether he's appeared before the grand jury. He's been pretty closed mouth about what occurred then, saying that's yesterday's news and I don't really want to talk about it now. Um, So you have to get these witnesses and you have to get them to tell a story because you don't want them to walk onto the witness stand and say, Pressure? What pressure? I don't remember <laughs> pressure. I remember. I remember the president being. I am the pressure. No, no, but you, you can see how it plays yeah. out. The prosecutor says this was a pressure campaign, and the person who was supposedly pressured says no. It was a repeated request of me to have this inquired of because the president sincerely felt that there was fraud, and he wanted to make sure that the election, the election was in fact. Um, secure and fraud free. So yes, he was concerned about that as anyone should be if there's evidence of fraud. And this was not pressure. This was just, you know, good due diligence on his way. You just don't want to have that as, you know, the how the, how the evidence comes in. So you have to make sure that everybody is locked down. So uh, whether or not he sees additional charges in that case, uh, or, or if he sees charges in those case, that case, we do not know. We do know, however, shifting gears, that uh, that he is possibly facing, according to recent reports, as many as 30 additional or more charges out of the Mar-a-Lago case, including perhaps uh, something to do with Bedminster. But uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like you to start and unpack that a little bit for us, if you will, Michael. Well, so there's been reporting. I think the Independent um, maybe was the first um, news organization that, that broke it. And what they're saying is that there may be additional charges out of the Mar-a-Lago facts, either a superseding indictment. A superseding indictment is just uh, you take the original indictment, you add more evidence and charges and refile it. Uh, so it supersedes, it takes the place of the original indictment. It's the same part, you know, it could be the same parties or it could be additional parties. And so the independent is saying, that there may be a superseding indictment or a separate indictment uh, for the activities related to uh, Mar-a-Lago or maybe even Bettminster, Maryland, uh, New Jersey, rather. What gives that some legs is that it is clear that the grand jury that indicted Trump and Walt Natow in the Mar-a-Lago case is still hearing evidence. Yes. That's that's not that's not unheard of. It's not usual. Usually you bring your indictment and then you get ready for trial. But when you're thinking about a case that's ongoing with a lot of moving parts and you file an indictment and then additional evidence becomes known to you, you can continue to hear that evidence, gather um, it and make a determination whether you should supersede the original indictment 
or if there are other parties uh, to file new indictment against them. And so there are names that that circulate uh, about whether or not they participated in the obstructive behavior, uh, both in um, Bettminster and in the White House and in uh, in Florida. So no one knows. It, it's, it's fair to speculate that it is a possibility because the grand jury is continuing to meet. But I just don't know from what's been reported publicly whether this is for some wishful thinking um, or whether it's really um, Rudy, anchored in, in fact. And Rudy Giuliani figures into that. And speaking of, that's a perfect uh, a, a segue, Michael, to John. The original reporting came out of The Independent and uh, our mutual friend, Andrew Feinberg. Uh, but the idea that um, that he it, is this is this wishful thinking on the part of reporters covering this particular case or is there <laughs> or is there actual physical evidence that this is ongoing michael points out the, the you know it is an it still is an ongoing uh investigation it is a sitting um grand jury but that's not unusual in of itself but john i'll let you hop in on that before i offer my view go for it Usually when you get a report like that, um, it is quickly, um, as we say in the business, matched. And uh, it's usually matched by the big three and CNN. So the Post, the Times, and the Journal, and CNN is usually right in there, uh, especially their digital team of reporters are, are very good. And NBC uh, has good investigative reporters and legal reporters. Um, I'll just say... Um, you know, I don't know anything about the reporting or the, the editing process that that has not been matched. And I think that's important to point out. Um, and until it is matched, I, I haven't seen it matched anywhere, but it could be. It could be. Um, it could be the case. It could have been a trial balloon and um, it could the trial balloon could have been latched onto um, by a news organization that is mostly concerned about turning clicks into profits. Yeah, that's one of the problems that we're having with this. And Michael, I appreciate the, all the legal stuff, but what we're talking about is uh, the uh, the uh, idea that sometimes we lead in the press with issues that don't really that are are more clickbait than they are news, and then it gets away from us before we can really do the solid reporting. To your point, John, and I was going to mention this as well. Uh, the New York Times only has reported that. Um, the investigation continues after the indictment because that's that is not and as michael pointed out that's not unusual the post uh the same thing although all of them are looking at bedminster but that place has not been searched yet right so that to to say that there would be charges coming out of anything out of new jersey and bedminster is a little presumptive because there have been no investigation there there's been no uh warrant served no search made nothing done correct and then um saying that they're preparing new charges as the grand jury probe uh resumes well that's what a grand jury does it, it right. investigates in order to to charge or not charge so that's a little presumptive as well and finally i i think um saying that shoes are yet to drop i do believe some of this is wishful thinking and i'm not pointing to anything 
that's not factual. I'm not saying that anything is not factual. I just believe that some of it is uh is it. I don't want to say wishful thinking, but it's interpreting the facts to mean something that the facts do not show as of yet. I'll, I'll go there, Brian. I'll say, and not that 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 uh, media organization uh, that we no, refer I'm, to. Yeah, but I'm, I'm talking about across the in board. In general, there is wishful thinking. Um, political journalists and Washington journalists, you know, they don't they don't want to cover four more years of Donald Trump. I think that is that is safe to say. They yeah. Um, I, I think we have and I, I don't know all the time how I feel about this. Um, I do believe we have chosen a side and I do think there is, and I think that bleeds over. We're just human. And I do think there is some wishful thinking in, in reporting about all things Trump, for sure. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, if we're going to be covering Donald Trump, we almost have to be, and Michael, feel free to push back on this one, but I feel like as reporters, we have to be almost like the DOJ, and that is uh, very meticulous, crossing the T's, dotting the I's, and not falling for the clickbait, and it's very, very hard to do, especially if uh, someone else is reporting, hey, he's going to be indicted, hey, there's more coming, and you have to look at the facts, and that's what the audience wants. To, the audience wants to hear one or the other. They don't want to hear he's he's innocent, being pro persecuted, or he's guilty and he's being prosecuted. But they don't want to have just vetted facts given to them and saying here's where it is and here's what's going on without drawing a conclusion. Everyone wants us to draw a conclusion before a conclusion can be drawn. Right, but the thing that's important, at least from the legal analyst standpoint, and where I take issue with some of the other uh, legal analysts on, on air, is in the case of Trump, they draw all inferences against Trump. So yes. you, take, you, said, you, you start with a fact, let's say the indictment in Mar-a-Lago. In the indictment, the prosecutor recounts a, um, a conversation between Trump and his lawyer. And it goes like this, lawyer, you got a subpoena. Trump, what does that mean? It means you've got a subpoena for documents and you have to reply. Do I really have to reply? Do I have to give them everything? What if we just say no? What if I um, only give them partial? What, you know, he's asking all of these questions and the lawyer says, no, you got to comply with with everything. Now, the prosecutor sticks that in there and says that's evidence of an attempt to sort of obstruct the investigation. Now, many of us who have had private sector clients who have received subpoenas have had the exact same conversation where the, the, the client is saying to the lawyer, what is this? What does it mean for me? What are my obligations? Do I have to do, I have to do this? Can I just say no? And the lawyer says, um, you know, no, you have to comply. This is the law. And the and the client then says, all right, well, comply. If I've got no choice, comply. So that conversation um, leading up to the conclusion of, well, if I have to comply, I have to comply, is not criminal. It's, it's just not inculpatory. Yeah, it's ordinary. Yeah. So the many commentators take that and say that's you know, sort of prima facie evidence of obstruction rather than saying it could go either way. And what we have to look to is what happened next. And now in the Trump case, what happened next was there wasn't 
full compliance. In fact, <laughs> there was a, an affirmative effort not to comply. And so those conversations maybe take on the sinister um, meaning that some want to attribute to them. But all I'm saying is that you have to be careful in not from the outset drawing every negative inference from that which right. could be have two two sides to the to the story. And that's what we, I think, as legal analysts and perhaps you guys as political reporters have to say, let's see, is there an innocent explanation for this as well as a criminal explanation and set out what the what the consequences are, whether it's innocent explanation, like my conversation with the lawyer that I just made up, or it's criminal, like the one that the prosecutors set forth. And that's yeah. important. And but yeah. you're right, right, to say one whole group of people only want to hear the story where all negative inferences are drawn against Trump. And the other side wants to hear the story with no negative inferences <laughs> drawn against Trump. And so if you're stuck in the middle saying, wait a second, it could be one or the other, you your channel probably gets changed. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly I'm doing a, well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling something ain't right. <laughs> right. <laughs> stuck in the middle with you, baby. All right. We're gonna we're gonna take a with Jerry Rafferty in case anybody wonders what that's all about. So anyway, we're gonna take a short break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the other uh person that was likely being on the ticket next November, current president Joe Biden. Stick around, we'll be right back. Hey, Just Ask the Question podcast listeners. If you've got a second, head on over to Twitter and follow our official page, JATQ Podcast. That's JATQ Podcast. In this modern age of misinformation and deceit, Just Ask the Questions newsletter cuts through the BS and gets to the truth. With Brian's in-depth articles, columns, and exclusive content not found anywhere else. Get the scoop and stay in the know. Sign up for the Just Ask the Question newsletter now at substack.com slash JATQ podcast. Okay, thank you, Sealer's Wheel and uh, <clears throat> Jerry Rafferty. We are back. We're stuck in the middle with you trying to get the facts. So the other person coming up that will probably be running for president next year, as he has already declared, and he is our current president, is Joe Biden. And, and we're going to have, John, I'm going to have you uh, kick this little segment off. We had a few things that happened this week that has given pause for concern among support, Democratic supporters as well as, of course, his opponents who are already claiming he's Dementia Joe, Sleepy Joe, uh, Crooked Joe, Out of Touch Joe, Criminal Joe, Criminal Mastermind Joe. He's both has dementia and is a criminal mastermind, both <laughs> in, the same, in the same breath, they'll say it. But he did have three things that kind of happened this week. He walked off the set of an MSNBC interview, uh, startling a few people. He referred to the Iraq war, which was endless uh, fodder for social media. And for some reason, he said during a, <laughs> during an appearance, God save the queen. Now, <laughs> it's hard. I, I'll, I'll preface this by saying every time I've been in front of the current president during this administration, he's taken and answered my questions. The problem with it being that no one else, no one in the press other than the um the protective pool seems to have access to him anymore. So when Jack, uh, Jackie Hendricks from uh, Fox asked him, did he let 
the American people down and mislead them this week with the uh, the uh, uh, events that were with the uh, um, executive order that was overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh, people got upset with her, but that was a that was a legitimate question. And there are plenty of questions that need to be asked of this president. And yet he's not available to answer them. And with that, that's I'll let you unpack that issue. Well, I was um, interested to see the president in, in that setting. And we don't see presidents in studio sitting on right. a set. And, and the rare instances that we do, it's kind of a special set. Well, that was not the case Thursday. He just walked right on to Nicole Wallace's usual <laughs> Monday through Friday, four to six o'clock, a block. Same, and, same one I've been on. That's sat a, down, yeah. right. Sat down at the desk. And, you know, they had a nice American flag graphic with the presidential seal. And, um, but it was, it was, it was, it was a different setting for any president. You know, we didn't see a Barack Obama or Bill Clinton or even Donald Trump do in studio things. So, and I wondered if the campaign, if his campaign wanted to do a little test run and see how he did in that environment. And I'll put my columnist hat on. And now having watched, you know, a handful of presidents, I will say it didn't go so well. Um, he just and it is, you know, one thing I I do worry about when I write or talk about the president's age, he, he turned 80 this year. Um, I, I don't want to be automatically lumped in with with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and, and you know, his conservative critics. But I do think it is a very fair issue talking about as we get into this election cycle. I, he's 80. He's this. This is an extremely stressful job. We know, you know, it's been a, a, a week or so ago. It was all Russia all the time. You know, he's meeting with his advisors and his cabinet folks. So and, and you have these Supreme Court decisions coming down and he's trying to figure out what to do about student loans. It's just a stressful job. Right. He's a leader of the free world and he's 80 years old. Uh, he's had some personal trauma in his life. He's had a lot. Recent, yeah. He's had recent personal trauma with his son, Hunter, agreeing to um, uh, a plea deal to some charges and admit guilt and other charges. So I'm sure that was stressful. Um, and he just didn't, he didn't look great on Thursday and he didn't sound great on Thursday. I, he was a little more meandering in his answers. Um, I thought Nicole Wallace at several times did him a favor by kind of nudging him back toward where he started his answer and then wandered off and she nudged him back. Um, it was almost like he was talking to one of his granddaughters or his daughter or something at times. It, it, it just didn't, it didn't look very pre or sound very presidential at times. Um, and then at the end of the interview, she's clearly wrapping it up and, you know, he can't plead like I haven't done live TV. Go search how many times he was on meet the press as a Senator right. and vice president. So he's done live television a lot and meet the press is just one example. So she's clearly wrapping it up. She's she's looking into the camera. She's doing that, you know, she's talking her way toward commercial. And the president gets out of his chair and walks off the set, walks off right behind her as she's, she's throwing it to break and saying, you know, the panel, we'll talk about this with our <laughs> panel when we get back. And there, as she's saying that, there's the president of the United States wandering 
offset. He's he's now he was cruising. He was moving. Yeah, well, he, he was booking. I I got someplace else to be, baby. I'm out. He of did. Here. I mean, I understand that campaign cash does not raise itself, and he was headed across Manhattan uh, for a fundraiser. So he did have somewhere to be. But at the same time, who walks off a set? We've all done live television. You sit there until the anchor throws it to commercial and and either in your ear or if you don't have the earpiece then the anchor will say hey thanks for coming that was great um and this and is POTUS by yeah. god if and, i want to get up and walk out i will that's, that's... yeah or or you know you and you sit there and then the, the 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 tech guy comes and he takes your microphone and and off you go back to reality but he right. just it was just a very surreal scene and i i think it is a hard sell at this point for his aides, even though it's their job, excuse me, I do think it's it's a harder and harder sell for them to just explain this stuff away. Oh, the president had somewhere to be. But who walks off a live television set? The president of the United States, if he wants to, by God. <laughs> I, I guess so. I mean, that would be a better answer. I don't think another thing, you know, we talked about the the wishful thinking in the media covering Trump. I think there's some wishful thinking in the media and covering Biden's age. And I think it goes back to what I raised. I, 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 we all know it. We see it. We, we follow his every word movement every day. Right. Um, we don't want to be lumped in with, with that, cons that, that far right crowd. And exactly. Um, I so understand I that I'm very empathetic with that, but we're going, we're going to have to start covering this because, you know, you know, he, he, he brought up the Iraq war, but doesn't it have to be the same? I mean, this is the one, and, and Michael, feel free to, and I hate to interrupt, but I, but it, it, you bring up such a salient point, John, is that we don't want to be seen as picking on him because of his age. But at right. the same time, don't we have to bring it up? And do we bring it up the same way with Donald Trump? Because he's not that much younger than than Biden, he's and three he's years had younger. his yeah, and he's had his moments, and oh, you so. and I have both seen them. Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna bring this issue up and it should be brought up because you know it uh, you and I, john as you've said several times you know i remember my grandfather at that age i didn't want either one of them at 77 or 80 being in charge of anything they might have trouble you know negotiating their way to the uh to the bathroom but um not to say that i had that problem but the, at the same time doesn't this what does this speak of as far as how we cover a president and how we cover an aspiring? This is uncharted territory for the United States to have two men of this age vying for the single most important job in this country. Or is it much ado about nothing? Anybody? Well, if the question is to me, the answer is it can't be much ado about nothing. You have to analyze the candidate in terms of that candidate's readiness to be president <clears throat> in the same way that uh, Sarah Palin was covered uh, as to her readiness to be president. She was young, but certainly not ready to be president of the United States. And she was covered and analyzed um, that that way. And so if you've got two people who you know, sort of perhaps experientially are ready to be president. One is a former president, one is a current president. So theoretically, they're ready to be president. Then you have to look at both their policies and their um, capabilities to, to do the job. As you've said, Brian, 
if you look at the photos of presidents before they assume the presidency and after they assume the presidency, whether it's a four-year term or an eight-year term, these guys age rapidly because yeah. there's a lot yeah. going on there. And you have to ask, are either of these guys or are both of these guys not likely to be able to perform the duties of the office? So it's a legitimate it's a legitimate question. The problem with Biden, of course, <clears throat> is the trope um, of of the Republicans that the guy is not ready. And you have to be careful, as you said, to be covering it, not from the trope standpoint, the talking point, but rather on the basis of objective, factual bases um, to offer an opinion about that. And we're not doctors. Um, and we don't know what his cognitive abilities really are. And, you know, I'm sure he has a Ronnie Jackson in his um, portfolio. Well, I hope, doctor, I hope not. <laughs> who, well, no, who'll be, I mean, a doctor who'll be able to say he's a, a fine physical specimen. Right. Remember, Ronnie Jackson was the Surgeon oh, General who said I was there. Trump yeah. was Trump was, you know, a, 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 a picture of good health, even though he was could, could live to be 200, <laughs> even though he was, you know, over. Um, but no, but even though by medical definitions, he was obese, you know. And, <laughs> and anyway, that's heart um, disease. <laughs> it, it, yeah, it it's 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 tricky, but it's important. Yeah, John, that's, I mean, it, and I'll leave you with, with a final, and like I said, I, I I mean, you were on a point, but I wanted to get Michael in there for that, but you're you're on a, uh, on a great point about the problems that we have in the press covering this particular issue. Yeah, I, you know, the president also mentioned the Iraq war several times this week um, in exchanges with reporters when he clearly meant the Ukraine war. Um you know, I, I went back and forth on this one, and I think, and I wrote this uh, in my last column on uh, for RollCall.com, you know, it might be a better question to nose around on why was Iraq suddenly on his mind? <laughs> what, what's in the PB, what's in the presidential daily intel brief? Yeah, right. Uh, you know, is, is ISIS up to something in Iraq? Um, you know, maybe. I love maybe, the way your mind goes. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's something going on there uh, that that it was front of mind, even if it appeared, and it does appear if you watch the video, it does appear to be a senior moment. Um, but you know, there, I'm wondering if there's a there there. I mean, who knows? Uh, who knows what's in the PBD? We don't get to see that one. Uh, Is there a general shitting himself in the Pentagon right now? Going, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I mean, I could, yeah, I could see. Um, I could see Mr. Burns, the CIA director, um, yeah, right. <laughs> putting his coffee down when he heard that one. And not, uh, or, I saw that scene. <laughs> or maybe. But for Red October, the, yeah. the, the coffee cup just tips over. <laughs> yeah. So I could see that. I could see something like that. But it made me wonder, you know, could there be something going on? We know ISIS, despite what uh, Mr. Trump says, he did not completely destroy ISIS. And we no. know that that there are still places they operate in the Middle East, and that includes parts of Iraq. So it just made me wonder that. I, I and but again, that's you know that that's part of the quandary here is do we look into it or do we just do we just shrug it off and say oh that's that's eighty year old Joe and he just misspoke. Well, I think at the, uh, to close this all off, I think that at the end of the day, what we really have to wonder is uh, 
I, I would just like to see the president of the United States out in front of the full press more often so that the American public can get a good uh, grasp of him and understand with their own interaction with him, his uh, mental being or you know, his mental well-being. I don't think it it helps the president of the United States going into an election season to have only conducted two presidential, full presidential press conferences at the White House since he became president. And that is for the open press. And I was there for one of them. Um, it was, um, he's always, and then one of them, one that was limited during COVID, he was out there for an hour and a half and took questions from 12 different reporters and took all of the questions he could. So I think that he is the, still remains the best spokesman for what he's doing. And it behooves him to step out from behind the pool, the protective pool, join us in the Brady briefing room whenever possible and have as many open press conferences as he can in the Rose Garden when the weather's good. And it's always 100 degrees and sunny in the uh, Rose Garden, even if it's the dead of winter and midnight. But it, nonetheless, it would be great to have or in the East Room and have him in front of the full press so that people can judge for himself, because I believe at the end of the day, his inability or his lack of concern about being in front of the full press only uh, muddies the water. So, Brian, as you know, and as your listeners know, my belief is that one need only read the lyrics of Bob Dylan and the Beatles, <laughs> and, and you'll know everything that you need to know about the world in which we live. And to that point. In Bob Dylan's It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding song, he sings, but even the president of the United States sometimes must have to stand naked. Ooh, that's a great lyric. I love that. That's <laughs> Amen. Now let's see if I can find that and play it. <laughs> With that, we'll end on that. And uh, uh, before we go to break, one other thing that we want to talk about is the SCOTUS decisions this week. Uh, student loan debt, LGBTQ, rights, affirmative action, and the elections. Quite a week for the Supreme Court of the United States. And uh, one of them, of course, uh, we'll start with the, uh, I don't know where the hell you want to start. I'll, I'll, John. I'll tell you where, I'll tell you where I want to okay. start. Okay, go ask ahead, Michael. To me, the, the, the long-term most significant decision from the court, in, in my view, was Moore versus Harper. And in Moore versus Harper, it was a case where the court was considering the ability of North Carolina state law lawmakers yes. to have final approval over their own redistricting map without there being judicial review. They put forward this theory, the independent state legislature theory under the U.S. Constitution's election clause, which says they have exclusive powers to regulate elections in their state, and they were, they could not be reviewed by uh, courts. And the Supreme Court ruled six to three with Chief, Chief Judge Roberts writing the majority that the Constitution's elections clause does not vest state legislatures with that exclusive and independent authority, and that they are, in fact, subject to judicial review. That is a critically important case, because had that case turned the other way, then what you'd have essentially is state legislatures being able to do whatever they want 
constitutional or otherwise, without judicial review. And the consequence of this case immediately was that North Carolina and I think another state, Mississippi or Alabama, one of those, no, Louisiana, will have to redraw their maps and create a, a fairer, um, less gerrymandered uh, map, which will create probably- will that, will that take effect in 2024? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so the notion that state legislators uh, uh, could redraw maps in their own political interests without the legislature being subject to judicial review was, I think, the most important from a democracy standpoint decision that the Supreme Court uh, made. And, and nothing really is close. The others we, we can talk about, but I don't know if you wanted to Yes, talk a little I, bit more I, about that one, or 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 turn to some of the other. Um, well, I I I like that you bring that up because that was almost forgotten under the deluge of information that came further in the week. At the beginning of the week, people were going, "Wow, it's not that uh, conservative of a, 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 a conservative SCOTUS after all." Supreme Court is, you know, blah blah blah. And then by the end of the week, with the uh, affirmative action. And with the student loan debt, people are back to saying, oh, my God, it's Donald Trumpism is taken over. And it's there are plenty of people tweeting about a variety of problems with the Supreme Court. But I think and John, you and I talked about that in the affirmative action case and uh, in the student loan debt case. I mean, there were look. Saying that the uh, that there should be no race in deciding how things happen on the face of it sounds excellent but there's a problem in the united states with a level playing field and it's never actually occurred so that one aside you go to the um student loan debt and there was you know i, I at the beginning it was i thought that this was something that biden did to appease the his uh far left progressives knowing full well that it wouldn't be vetted by the constitu by the by the supreme court he even said in in the in the statement was look we're going to have to do this we we're going to have to get this done it's got to be through legislation it's going to take time there was a it was an attempt at a quick and dirty and easy fix and it didn't work john yeah i think you're right about the student loan case uh, biden himself was skeptical uh, he never came out and said i don't have the authority but i'm going to try this anyway uh, but he did say this will be seriously challenged and i'm not sure that this court will uphold it. Yeah. Um, and he was, and he was, he was correct. Biden was right. Biden saw this coming. Um, so now they have to go the long route on that, which is the, the usual rulemaking. They, uh, uh, secretary Cordona, education secretary and other officials who, who briefed reporters after Biden spoke on Friday made clear that they have to go through the public hearing phase, public comment, legal review. They have to go through this long bureaucratic process Reporters were were understandably asking, like, what will this look like? Well, how would the program work? How long will it take? They have no idea because they have to go through every step to build the program from scratch. And they can't they can't design the contours of the program really until they begin that public comment and hearing period. This is going to take a very long time. Uh, that's just the nature of these things. So uh, but back to to the other cases, you know, Clarence Thomas, very conservative justice, longtime justice, wrote. Um, in, in one of his uh, opinions that that um, race should not be factored in because, you know, barriers that someone encountered because of race should not matter. 
That's just a <laughs> staggering statement in the United States of America where we're still not over the original <laughs> sin of slavery. Um, and it's just, it's staggering to think that the barriers don't matter. I mean, I heard that this morning. It's the first time I heard it on one of the Sunday shows. Uh, one of the anchors read it. And, you know, I just, it's its not reality. It's not based it's, in reality. It's, color, it's, it's blind yeah. to reality. And and how can, how can you know, the conservatives say, you know, you can't legislate things. Well, how can you, how can you by edict from the Supreme Court bench, the dais, um, by how, how can you have color blindness by edict if you can't legislate x y or z i just it it's just not realistic none of that seems very realistic forget the the legal part of anything right and and this complaint uh or this request that the web developer had um apparently never existed her yeah lawyers, that's the one thing i wanted to ask michael she she or her lawyers appear to have made this up the well i think it was the i don't remember which outlet several outlets contacted this gentleman Friday, why it took that long, I don't know. Um, contacted him Friday. We suck. <laughs> he's not gay, and he's a web developer himself. So he says, and he's married. Uh, and he says, you know, even if I did want a website, I don't need to call someone to design it for me. That's what I do for a living. <laughs> so that you know, so this this whole thing has taken on a, a new level of bizarreness for me. And, and again, the the notion that that barriers don't exist is just it, it's just it's boggling boggles the mind at well, least for me. Yeah, yeah, but for all well, me too. And I'm not, I'm not. I, I admit, I'm not a brilliant wit, but by God, it it does. But uh, Michael, I, I I guess that's I, I wanted to pivot to you on that. I mean, does this in in any way impact the Supreme Court decision in the LGBTQ case because the web the the guy is based on a apparent false case? Well, interesting that you ask. Michael Gerhardt, the the great constitutional lawyer from the University of North Carolina, and I were emailing with each other this morning about this very question, and I asked him if it wasn't a real case or controversy, um, can the decision be vacated? And yeah. he said, maybe you could, the state probably could file something asking for that, but it's um, a big uphill climb. And to think that he said uh, that the Supreme Court didn't know or the parties didn't know that this wasn't really a case or controversy requires a level of naivete that... Um, you know, he wasn't prepared to go to. What, what, what's interesting? What's interesting about the sort of the big three: the the affirmative action and the student um, loan um, uh, case, and the LBGTQ, the three hundred three Creative LLC um, case, is when Trump was talking about who he was going to appoint to the Supreme Court. And it goes back to George W. Bush as well. They 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 said they do not want judges who will legislate from the bench. They view judicial activism as a negative and that they were going to appoint judges who strictly construe the Constitution. Well, well, they threw that out. If you look if you look at these decisions, um, in 
the anti-discrimination um, cases, uh, race and LBGTQ, and the student loan cases. These are these are all cases that require a lot of judicial activism. Yes, for the court to have reached the conclusion that it wants, and so what we see again and again is conservatives don't want judicial activism if the activism is going to be like the Supreme Court of Earl Warren, where right. they gave people all sorts of new constitutional protections or the Roe v. Wade uh, decision, which gave uh, women uh, the right of choice. They don't want that activism. They want their activism. And that's what this Supreme Court is going to be remembered for, which is it's going to be remembered as among the most activist courts in uh, our constitutional history. And they are making decisions on cases that really look to be political decisions, decisions that reaffirm their pre-existing political beliefs and not strictly on the record uh, uh, before them. And if you look at the dissents uh, in, in all of these cases, you'll see time and again the dissenting justices saying you are not following the law the law yeah. here is well settled and you are making up new rules as you go along i mean one of the one of the most they're using fiction they they actually are using not facts but fiction a case that was made up and they well, had, like you said they had to know this that well, to me but, is the most frightening thing that you that I've heard about the Supreme Court in my entire life. To bring a case before the Supreme Court that you know is based on fiction and not fact, and then making a ruling that affects hundreds of millions of people based on a fiction and a whim. I don't think there's anything more frightening I've ever heard. Right. But on the other hand, there are some cases that were were good. Uh, Merrill yeah. versus Milligan. No, again, important cases. Merrill, Merrill, I agree. Merrill versus Milligan was a 5-4 decision with Justice Roberts writing the majority decision, which uh, threw out Alabama's redistricting voting plan because it violated the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. Uh, it upheld Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Critically important because that Section two bans racial discrimination in the voting process. So here we have a, a five, four decision um, uh, that went, I think the right way there, there, but to your point of making things up, the, the, if people want to look at things just being made out of whole cloth, they can look at this case, Shackett versus the EPA, which was a, um, a case considering the proper test for determining whether wetlands are waters of the United States. And in that in that decision, the court sort of created a whole new definition of what is a wetland in order to gut the Clean Water Act from, you know, from protecting wetlands. Um, and it's just they're legislating. They're legislating. Yes. yes. Um, and and so, you know, people can say, well, good, I'm glad they're legislating or bad they're legislating. But the point I'm trying to make is that these Republican presidents have run against the notion of judicial activism and legislating from the bench. 
And what we're seeing in this court is, and from the defenders of this court, is that people are very happy to have legislating from the court bench and judicial activism as long as the outcome suits their politics. There's no consistency. They, they, they'll they rail against the Earl Warren court for decisions giving criminal defendants additional rights as judicial activism and say, we need to get rid of those sort of judges. But when they get judges that do the exact same thing, but in their favor, you know, it's crickets. There's no sound whatsoever to say, you know exactly. what? We don't like judicial activism. Even if we win on it, we need judges who are uh, neutral baller call callers of balls and strikes, but you don't get that in our, in our world. And that's, what's the most disappointing for me, independent of any individual decision. And there's some pretty horrible decisions this past week, the notion that, that, that of the, the hypocrisy of, um, the, of conservatives in not calling out judicial activism, even though they benefit from it is to me, uh, striking. And John, I mean, to me, this this is this particular what we've seen in this this Supreme Court. This is Donald Trump's legacy. He got them in there. He he. It was a thirty year effort by the Federalist Society to get conservative justices on the Supreme Court to run the Supreme Court, and it was made possible through Donald Trump. And this will be more than anything else. I think his legacy. Yeah, Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. Uh, well, Mitch let's McConnell. not for, let's not yeah. forget Mitch. Michael read Mitch. my mind. That's right. Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, I, this was uh, remember it was McConnell who made the decision in the final uh, months of Barack Obama's administration, Merrick about a year, I guess, to not give Merrick Garland uh, even a confirmation hearing when Obama nominated him for the High Court. That left a seat open. That was the first of the three judges that Trump and McConnell. Uh, put on the Supreme Court. So this, this uh, you you can't you can't tag this to Trump's legacy without also tagging it to McConnell's legacy. And remember, Mitch McConnell still uh, does not really have a signature piece of legislation that he's ever helped or you know personally written or negotiated and, and pushed through uh, Congress. So this is a big part of McConnell's legacy, if yes. not the biggest, and not just the the three Supreme Court judges. But the hundreds of conservative judges that that he and the Federalist Society, you know, they would present this to Trump, uh, these lists. Uh, and that he went just and he just Donald Trump being Donald Trump. Going, oh, I don't care. Do it. Do it. It's fine. The, the, that's certainly what the reporting indicates is with a very few exceptions. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Trump made the final call, of course, on the three Supreme Court justices, and he did interview those people. So, um yeah, but it's also McConnell, and it started with the blockade of uh, the Garland nomination. So that was a hell of a gamble this, he took, too. Yeah, it was a hell. Yes, it was absolutely a gamble, um, and, and that's really more McConnell. He's not. He's he's not a legislator in 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 the sense, um, you know, that that he wants to write and pass bills. He's not even that much of like you know Kevin McCarthy's passing a lot of messaging bills. McConnell's skill is maneuvering and using the rules to his advantage, and that's what he did back then. Now, one thing that that goes underreported, but we've got so much uh, else to report on, is uh, Biden and Chuck Schumer, now the majority leader in the Senate, they've put a lot of left-leaning judges 
on on other benches across the country. So this is now as much a part of Washington and and the Senate's function has changed because, you know, we've got these small majorities in each chamber. You can't really pass any legislation right now. So the Senate, um, as I've written it, is it's just a judicial nominee factory. And the Republicans are able to, and using the rules, because the Senate's rules is about protecting the minority, not so much the majority passing whatever they want. So the Republicans are able to use the rules to slow that down. And 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 really, Schumer has to grind the clock for every one of these nominations, but they're not doing anything else. So that's what they're going to be doing in the summer and into the fall. We're going to have a big spending fight in the fall. But until now and then, that's a big priority for Biden and Schumer is to get as many of those judges on benches uh, as they can between now and whatever happens on Election Day a year and a half from now. Well, and no, can so I, can I add the, one? yeah, go ahead. I just, I just want to add, while we're still talking about the Supreme Court, and I agree with what John said, but it's actually a little bit more pernicious because if you look at Florida, where DeSantis put on three conservative judges um, uh, when the three liberals retired, the, the judges that were given forth to DeSantis to nominate were also these Federalist Society vetted by the same same guy um, who was behind the, the Supreme Court um, justices. Uh, so this is taking place at the state and federal level. But I wanted to ask John one question, which is a, a political question, which is going back to the student loan case. If you look at the states that have the highest number of loan debt, student loan debt per state, in the top 10, five are Republican states, North Carolina, Ohio, Georgia, Florida and Texas, and then the uh, one of the other ones besides New York and and California is Pennsylvania. So you've got essentially five red states and one um, purple state with the most student loan debt in the country. Is there a way yet to figure out what the impact that's going to be on Gen Z voting patterns? Mm-hmm. I mean, is this is this in some sense a, a gift? Um, to to Democrat candidates that these guys are going to say, you know what, enough's enough um, with these Republicans and their and their judicial appointments, and I've got to get out there and vote because yeah. voting yeah, has I, consequences. Yeah, I think absolutely the Democrats will try to use it as a gift. Uh, you also mentioned Georgia, so Pennsylvania and Georgia yeah. were in the mix in the last right. in the twenty twenty yeah. election, um, and. Certainly, Democrats in those two states are going to use this. It's, you know, it is Gen Z. Absolutely. Um, it's also, you know, I always think about independent voters in in those and those two or those two states are in the, the when I always say six or eight battlegrounds. Those two are certainly now on that list. And I think about independent voters, you know, they're more they're more moderate. They, they don't want to get, you know, labeled as either. Um, a lot of them broke for Donald Trump in 2016, but they went to Biden in 2020. And, you know, they're they are more educated. And so they're going to have student loan debt. And I really think about, you know, independent women in those states. And we've all seen the stats that women, uh, young women are going to college um, at a higher rate than young men. And Biden, Biden did very well uh, with with women in that voting block uh, in 2020. And I would expect uh, 
that to to continue and then you've got you know the the roe decision uh on federal abortion protection so republic these republican justices you know they're carrying out this stuff they've wanted to do for decades but you do get the sense at least on paper elections a long time away um there'll be other things to vote on like inflation but the republic is there a little bit of cutting off their nose to spite their face with some of these decisions and and some of the things that that House Republicans have passed, you do wonder if um, you know some of the things that they've passed. They've got eighteen to twenty competitive districts that Biden won in twenty twenty to protect a five seat majority. And yeah, you you, you do wonder. Um, you know, Republicans finally got some of this power they wanted, but are they using it in a way to keep that power? And I I think you can question you know, whether they're doing exactly that, whether they're shooting themselves in the foot, for sure. That's, and uh, I, I will, you know, all this said, and we'll, we'll end on this before we, we got a couple of letters we're going to get to before we leave, and we'll take a short commercial break after this. But listening to all this, you know, what it strikes me is that Congress can no longer pass legislation. So now they're counting on the Supreme Court to do it. They've become so judiciously, you know, so active. It's an activist court. Everything that's going on at the end of the day, it frightens me that legislation has shifted. John, like you said, we they're they're just a nomination factory, the Senate, and all key legislation that affects us so deeply. I wonder how much longer it'll be before you know we we'll end up having the budget decided by the Supreme Court. Anyway, we'll we'll leave it with that. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll have some letters. Stick around. Hey, you. Yeah, you. We're talking to you, and we need your help. As you probably know, independent journalism is a vital pillar of our democracy. Like everything else, it's not free. We're asking all longtime listeners of the show to help support us by becoming a member on Patreon. For the price of a latte, you can help guard democracy. Join us today at patreon.com slash J-A-T-Q podcast to help us keep bringing you the podcast you love and the facts you deserve. Hi, we are back. It is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karen. With us for our normal weekly roundup on things that have interested us this week is um, uh, former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin and editor-at-large CQ Rocall John Bennett. And we have letters. We have your letters. And that would David Letterman letters. We have your letters. So the first letter we have is uh, uh, we'll give it to you, Michael, from Armand, the great MAGA. OK, uh, <clears throat> why doesn't the DOJ do more to prosecute Biden? Isn't this proof that Donald Trump is right? I'm sorry, what are they supposed to be prosecuting him on? <laughs> he doesn't say. Well, so. If the theory is that President Biden, in cahoots with Hunter Biden, somehow profited um, from a, a fraud or other scheme, my understanding is that the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in um, Delaware, Weiss, is in fact investigating that. He's been investigating it for a while. And... So it is his to his question. This is actively under investigation. 
the DOJ uh, main justice under uh, A.G. Garland has essentially recused themselves from the matter because of obvious appearance issues. They've given it all to Weiss, and Weiss just wrote a letter to Congress uh, in response to the whistleblower case, uh, the whistleblower in the IRS uh, decision in Hunter Biden, saying, I absolutely have complete authority to do whatever I want. And what the whistleblower is saying is just flat out untrue. So the answer to my question is, it, if there is criminal wrongdoing, you have a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney with carte blanche authority to investigate anywhere in the United States, conducting that investigation. He has said he's got carte blanche investigation that nobody from DOJ has been interfering with um, his decisioning, and that if and when he makes a decision, um, he'll have the authority to bring charges. So that's the process. And so we have to wait and see what he says. What he said so far is that Hunter Biden engaged in tax um, evasion and uh, is pleading guilty to it. Um, and that there is there yet to be a determination about whether or not somehow uh, President Biden, or at the time perhaps former President Biden or Vice President Biden, I don't know what status he was in during the course of this investigation, is being reviewed. And so it, the process is working. If he doesn't have faith in the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney and what the U.S. attorney himself says that I've got full authority that's you know nothing i can help him with <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's a good answer to that question john for you one from anti-mags anti-mags a-n-t-i-m-a-g-s 38 why is marjorie taylor green allowed to lie on television why isn't she censored <laughs> um, why is she allowed to lie on television uh well one reason uh you know i haven't she's seen a her. member of congress <laughs> well there's that she, she does have a free speech protection of her own so you know we can say You're right yeah we can say what we want on television um you know when when she does television a formal television you know she's on fox or, or fox business or uh newsmax and she is putting out narratives and an agenda that for the most part their on-air personalities agree with. So they're not exactly going to push back against her. They're selling the same sauce uh, that she is. Now, um, I think when she does when when she's grabbed in a hallway or after votes by someone like Manu Raju from CNN, uh, he does push back. Yeah, I love when he to, does it. Yeah, and he does point out that no no congresswoman, that's not the case. Um, and I think he does a really good job with those yeah. hallway interviews. He's the king of those right now. He's, he um, nails it. He does yeah, it. Yeah, and, and, he's, and when I'm on the Hill, he's always there. He, he, he works – he knows the institution. He knows the members. I, I love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it does happen – uh, if you're not watching CNN, if if you're watching her on, you know, Maria Barter Romo's uh, Sunday morning program or on Fox and Friends in the morning or a Newsmax primetime show, uh, you know, there she's she is she is singing the company line. And and despite Fox allegedly trying to pull away from Trump and, and go towards someone like DeSantis, that primetime lineup and, and it, some of their some of their other coverage, especially on Fox Business, it's still very, very MAGA, and so is she. 
Yes. Yes. There you go. So I, I guess I'll, I'll add to that. I, I guess the implication is because Schiff was censored. Why? Why wasn't she? And I'll. Oh, sen- you mean? Yes. I'm sorry. I thought you yes. said censored. You said censured. No, censured. Censured. Okay. Sorry. So right. I, I, I would add to it. I, I don't think they're the votes for it. And <laughs> no, but they don't have the votes for it. That's simple. Now they they allegedly, reportedly, even though it's only been reported by one or two outlets, the the House Freedom Caucus did vote to kick. Marjorie Taylor Greene out. <laughs> out. <laughs> um, they haven't exactly put out a press release. They're not big on on press releases. Well, they can't um, write, so that's so. So you know, she's <laughs> the the ironic thing here is um, she, when she speaks, she can be the most freedom caucus of the freedom caucus when she speaks on some issues. Um, but at, but she has. She had said she has said things about fellow freedom caucusers. Um, <laughs> you mean like Colin Lauren Bobert a bitch? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I, I think for now, I think the they only had the votes within the freedom caucus to um, right. react to some of the things that she said. They don't have the votes within the wider house to to censure her. Yeah, and I don't think there's any truth to the rumor that she'll be do- joining WWE, but that's just me. <laughs> but, but anyway, thank you guys again. It's been a very interesting week in American politics, and uh, we could have done just an hour alone on the SCOTUS decisions. Uh, but Michael, thank you for the comments on that. They were great. And John, thank you for your contribution as well, because there's nothing more fun than discussing the stupidity of American politics. But anyway, before we take off, John, where can we catch it? Plug away. Uh, every Friday morning, a weekly column on rollcall.com and CQ afternoon briefing. Subscribe today at CQ.com. And Michael. My podcast is called That Said with Michael Zeldin. It's a book-based podcast discussing uh, books that have interesting stories relevant to our current times and beyond. And and no truth to rumor that you're going to have uh, you know, uh, Bob Dylan on, right, the, to discuss the, the, the importance of his lyrics. Uh, you know, he wrote a book called The Great American Songbook, which just came out yes. in the past year. And I spoke to his publisher, about it uh to say what do you think and he said you're kidding <laughs> <laughs> no that would be great it would be perfect on your show that i mean yeah, anybody I, that can pull out the lyrics that i had those were great lyrics by the way that i completely forgot about and i remember the song but having the president of the united states stand naked I don't know that anybody wants to see that in real life, but hey, <laughs> the I, I don't think he meant it. I don't think he meant it literally. <laughs> literally, right? yeah. I hope not. I hope <laughs> not. If, if 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 he appears on uh, on my podcast, I will ask him there you on, go. Your, on your behalf. Did you mean that literally, or was it just you know sort of? <laughs> if you have a crush on the guy i'm telling you a tough room anyway <laughs> the name of this podcast is just ask the question you can catch my stuff uh the name of the book is called free the press wherever fine books are sold and of course the podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold in my weekly column at salon.com so listen once again guys thanks it's been a great week and always a lot of fun We'll catch you next time. This is Just Ask the Question. I am your host, Brian Karam. We'll catch you next time.